Available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello and welcome from me, Nigel Hewin, to this week's edition of Outlook, being recorded on Wednesday the 12th of July 2023. Aren't we getting through the year quickly? And coming up in the next 90 minutes or so, Margaret will be talking about Cowden Hall. Uh, there's a lady who makes, makes do and mend on the repair shop. Uh, her name is uh, Susie Fletcher. We'll find out more about what she's been doing uh, since uh, being on the repair shop. Dictionary Corner's back uh, with Margaret again. Uh, they, these are some of the strange words and phrases that uh, Susie Dent's picked up uh, and how they've evolved into modern statements or words of today. The Gilbert Richards Centre is an age concern centre here in Ellsman and it's uh, ce- celebrating its 40th anniversary and Keith tells us more about that. Ali's back with another of her short stories, this one called Broken Heart Pendant. And finally, of course, because of the Godiva Festival only ten days ago, Dave inevitably went down there and he's bringing a report on that for us. But all that later, together with your, uh, your post bag, sport, a report from the centre, but we're going to start, as usual, with Elaine and myself, not Eleanor, Elaine and myself, <laughs> with this week's news. Outlook News. A historic Coventry landmark is finally set to be unveiled tomorrow, Thursday the 13th of July. The Coventry Cross, a 1976 replica of a 16th century monument, has been carefully reconstructed after it was dismantled in 2021. The site of the replica, located in Broadgate area near Primark, has been fenced off for many weeks during the highly anticipated rebuild. It features stained glass windows that tell the history of the medieval cross to Coventry and a 3D printed statue of King Henry VI. The 57-foot monument has been removed from Cuckoo Lane to make way for a new development, but is ready to return. The cross was an important landmark, according to the Coventry Society. Early records show that the cross was here in the 1300s, It was probably a simple cross carved out of the local red sandstone. In 1423, the courtly records show that there was an order for a new cross, which lasted for a hundred years. Unfortunately, part of the upper section had to be taken down for safety reasons. In 1441, work started on building a new cross from money left by Sir William Hollies in his will. Sir William had been born in the Stoke area of Coventry. He made his money in London and had been Mayor of London. The website adds, The new cross was brightly painted and picked out with gilding. It stood for 200 years, but by 1771 it was taken down after part removed to avoid its collapse. Parts of the cross were saved and one sculpture of King Henry VI was put by the stairs in St Mary's Hall and is now on display in the Herbert Museum. There are said to be pieces of the original 
cross in a garden on Tamworth Road. It's plain that the idea of a replica was first suggested in the 1930s, but it was not until 1971 that discussions and plans were shown to the Coventry Civic Amenities Society, now the Coventry Society, and church authorities. Funded by the Coventry Boy Foundation, the replica stood next to Holy Trinity Church, a hundred metres away from the original site of the Old Cross. It was cast in concrete in Scotland to resemble Coventry stone. The panels were bolted to a central structure and it was unveiled on St George's Day, April 23, 1976. It was dismantled in 2021 to create a more attractive entrance for one of the restaurants in Cathedral Lanes. So its return is long overdue. With summer holidays already with us and the cost of food squeezing families, many households are continuing to struggle to make ends meet. High inflation rates have exacerbated problems, so the government has introduced a uh, cost of living payments to try and ease the pressures. The £450 is a cumulative total, a £301 sum for households on mean-tested benefits and a subsequent £150 for people on disability benefits. The £301 payment has been given to people receiving any of the following means-tested benefits. They are described as means-tested because of the amount given to a claimant depends on their income and savings. The seven benefits that are eligible are child tax credit, income-based job seekers allowance, income-related employment and support allowance, income support, pension credit, universal credit and working tax credit. Meanwhile, the 150 payment is for individuals receiving disability benefits. These are not means-tested and can be awarded even if you're working, have savings or getting most other benefits. There are nine benefits that qualify for this, and these are adult disability payment in Scotland, armed forces independence payment, attendance allowance, child disability payment, again in Scotland apparently only, constant attendance allowance, disability living allowance for adults, disability living allowance for children, personal independence payments, war pension mobility supplement. Fears have been raised that plans to close Coventry Railway Station ticket offices will make railways less safe and accessible. Coventry North West MP Taiwo Owatamai has spoken out against the plans. Tyre Hill and Candley stations are affected under the plans by West Midlands Railway. And Coventry Railway Station will also be affected under separate plans by Avanti West Coast. Mazawatamai has written to the Transport Secretary about the closures to ticket offices at Coventry, Tile Hill and Canley due to concerns that the closures could make the railway less safe and accessible and especially impact disabled, elderly and vulnerable passengers. Train operators and rail firms told staff on last Wednesday about the nation's mass closures to move staff from ticket offices into stations to help modernise the railway with the Rail Delivery Group, saying that staff would move to a new and engaging roles. 
Rail bosses say there has been a major change in the way people buy tickets, with the use of ticket offices reduced from 82% to 12% over the last 30 years. A public consultation is being held into the proposals, which is set to last 21 days for passengers, with closures set to be made over the next three years. Chief Executive of Rail Delivery Group Jacqueline Starr said, Our proposals would mean more staff on hand to give face-to-face help with a much wider range of support, from journey planning to finding the right ticket and helping those with accessibility needs. We also understand that our customers have differing needs, which is why the industry widely sought views on accessibility and from passenger groups when creating these proposals, and will continue to do so throughout the consultation. Mr. Watamai has also written to Avanti West Coast and West Midlands Trains to express her concerns. Muzawatamai says that passengers in Coventry are already suffering due to the chaos on the railways and urges the importance that staff have clarity about their job security and that vulnerable passengers are not forgotten about as changes are made to the way railway stations operate. The West Midlands has topped the regional rankings for foreign investment and has seen the highest growth in the UK. According to official data from the Department of Business and Trade, the region has its highest foreign direct investment performance on record. The West Midlands also has more projects than Scotland and Wales combined, surpasses London and outstrips the country's average fivefold. And the region bucked the national trend of a decline in FDI-related jobs as well. The last financial year saw the West Midlands Growth Company, the region's official investment promotion agency, achieve a 171% increase in projects compared to last year. The Business and Tourism Programme, the first of its kind established to boost the economic impact of the Commonwealth Games, has played a key role in boosting the region's inward investment performance. Over the last year, BATB led trade and investment missions to India, Australia, Malaysia and Singapore and to the US. These links have enabled the West Midlands to strengthen existing trade ties and reach into new markets to increase its inward investment. In the past year, India has overtaken the US to become the West Midlands' leading FDI source, with tech-led investments into the region representing a prominent trend. Andy Street, the Mayor of the West Midlands, said there could be not a greater vote of confidence in the region than investors putting their money on the table in the way they they have done in the last year. But it is critical now we keep up this momentum and continue to build on the global platform that the Commonwealth Games gave us. Protesters from five different groups marched from the Godiva statue to Seven Trent's Coventry headquarters last Friday to protest against the firm's record of dumping raw sewage in rivers. Around a 100 protesters took the journey to St John Street carrying flags and banners and then returned a bucket of mock sewage to the company. The march was part of the Coventry Dirty Water campaign which has called on Seven Trent to invest in modern treatment of the sewage, expand holding tanks to stop river dumping and stop leaks in the system. 
A campaign spokesperson said, Southern Trent paid $261 million in dividends last year and the CEO Liv Garfield pocketed $3.9 million. Despite these huge profits, there has been chronic underinvestment in the system, which has created a vast backlog of neglected pipes and sewage works. Not one river in England is in good chemical condition, and only 14% are in good ecological condition. The group also expressed concern over an environmental agency decision to extend the schedule for tackling pollution in rivers, lakes and coastal waters from 2027 to 2063. Professor Elizabeth Wellington from the School of Life Sciences at the University of Warwick is part of the campaign. She said, this is more serious than the threat of Covid. If you're a fisherman, dog walker, wild swimmer, or a child paddling in the shallows, or a canoeist, or you're just unlucky enough to fall in the water, you are in danger of getting an infection, which could be caused by an antibiotic-resistant bacterium and be more difficult to treat. A certain trans spokesperson said, We fully respect the right to peacefully protest and understand why people feel let down by water companies when it comes to rivers. We know what needs to be done to make it right, and we're doing it. We're delivering an industry-leading plan that includes bold commitments so that by 2030 our operations will cause no harm to rivers. Coventry's super recycling facility with AI technology is set to open next month. The Sherbourne Resource Park plays home to the new facility which will combine the latest in sorting equipment powered by cutting-edge technology including artificial intelligence and robotics making it one of the most advanced plants of its size in the world. Coventry City Council has confirmed that the new materials recycling facility will open towards the end of next month. In a statement, Councillor Patricia Heatherton, Cabinet Member for City Services, said the new materials recycling facility is looking great and I'm pleased to say it will open towards the end of next month. Not only will will it be the best facility of its kind in the country, using the very latest technology, it will also help us to recycle more, which is good news for local people and for the environment. Coventry City Council is one of eight local authorities behind the new materials recycling facility at the back of Coventry and Solihull's waste disposal company on London Road. Partners include Nuneaton and Bedworth Borough Council, North Warwickshire Borough Council, Rugby Borough Council, Solihull Metropolitan Borough Council, Walsall Council, Warwick District Council and Stratford District Council. It was originally estimated to cost £34.5 million and it has been revealed that this rose by more than £20 million. And its rise and its final cost is believed to be around £60 million. The facility will have the capacity to handle a huge 175,000 tonnes of dry mixed recycling from curbside collections annually. Warwickshire's bid to join the West Midlands Combined Authority has been dubbed gerrymandering for votes for the current West Midlands Mayor. 
Labour groups in Warwickshire claim that the Tory-run County Council's proposals to potentially become a member of the West Midlands Combined Authority are driven by politics and say they are essentially trying to manipulate or gerrymander the authority's composition to keep it Tory. They claim it is to ensure that the current West Midlands Mayor, Andy Street, has more Conservative votes when it comes to the elections next year. The WMCA is made up of local councils working together on decisions across council boundaries in our area. But Tory Mr Street said on Monday that he was not trying to annex Warwickshire. He stressed that the decision would be down to the county council leader, Councillor Izzy Seacombe, and her cabinet. He added, I cannot make that happen. The leaders of Warwickshire are deciding what is in their long-term interest, he said. It would be lovely to think that I have all of that power, and I am manipulating it all, but it isn't true. Warwickshire County Councils will decide. Concerns have also been raised about the impact of Warwickshire joining the WMCA by Nuneaton and Bedfordshire councillors. This is because Warwickshire would be the only two-tiered authority on the WMCA if its membership is agreed. There are concerns that this could lead to it having to become a unitary authority to serve the whole of Warwickshire, making borough and district councils redundant. The majority of councillors at Nuneaton and Bedworth Borough Council passed a motion saying that they would not support anything that would lead to the abolition of the Town Hall. In a statement, Councillor Chris Watkins, leader of the Labour Group at the Borough Council, has since said, We need more time, and the residents of this borough need to be consulted on such an important issue so that they are fully aware. He alleged, this indeed seems a behind-the-scenes agreement, like the attempt and still the wish to absorb Nuneaton and Bedworth into Warwickshire County Council, leaving the residents without local democratic control. Nuneaton and Bedworth Borough Council staff have been told that five days' pay for four days' work is bonkers and will not ever happen. That's the frank view of Town Hall leader Councillor Chris Wilson when he was asked about the trial that is currently underway at South Cambridge's District Council. It is the first in the country to trial the system of working four days for full pay and Councillor Wilson was asked at a full council meeting if they were following suit. In response he said, in plain English the answer is a definite no. I must confess that I find the whole concept of working a four-day week on a five-day pay, pay is quite bonkers. The idea you can get 100% pay for 80% work is absolutely absurd. He went on, Under this Conservative administration, we will never agree to any proposal to reduce officers to a four-day working week. Residents at Nuneaton and Berth deserve to be able to access services every day of the week in every department. Any experiment with a four-day week would, be put, would put this at risk. If officers wish to work a four-day week, they can do so under existing flexible working arrangements, just like many other residents do in their world of work. 
either by a compressed week doing five days work in four, meaning they will still work and be paid for 37 hours per week, which does actually work for some people because it enables them to fit in with their caring responsibilities. An alternative is to work four days a week and get paid for four days a week. He is not the only one to disagree with the trial at the Liberal Democrat Council, as Michael Gove, the Secretary for Leveling Up, Housing and Communities, says he is a strong believer that council staff should work a full five-day week. Plans for a £19 million network of new cycling, walking and bus routes in Coventry are being drawn up. It comes after more than £500,000 was awarded to fund the scheme's design and development. The routes are set to provide transport links to the south of the city, including the Battery Industrialisation Centre and the proposed site for a new Gigafactory, where batteries will be made for electric vehicles. It will also offer links to major new housing developments at the Whitley Pumping Station and Allard Way sites. Under the scheme, there would be a segregated cycle route from Tollbar End to Coventry City Centre. Remodelled key road junctions to improve bus journey times and provide safer crossings for pedestrians and cyclists. And new walking and cycling routes at the Asda roundabout in Whitley. Transport for West Midlands is working with Coventry City Council on the project. Of the £19 million, £17 million has come from the City Region Sustainable Transport Settlement awarded to Transport for West Midlands last year. This sum is being topped up with contributions from developers. Andy Street, Mayor of the West Midlands, said, Last year we secured landmark government funding worth £1.3 billion to invest in our region's transport infrastructure. We've already seen funding earmarked for a range of projects, with many already underway across our rail, bus, metro and active travel networks. Coventry City Centre was a place filled with many high street stores and local independents, bringing thriving business to the city. The people are now saying it's a ghost town and a disgrace with no decent shops. Many shops have closed in the city over recent years. T.J. Hughes, Topshop, Clinton's, Next and Argus due to the struggles of the Covid pandemic, which affected the retail sector massively, with many customers resorting to online shopping and visiting less in person. Currently, there are 59 empty shop units in the city centre, with this number five times higher than it was in 2022 uh, in a survey conducted by Coventry City Council. Many of the empty units are located at City Arcade, which will soon be demolished to make way for the £450 million redevelopment project of City Centre South. Coventry City Council said that some of the new vacant shops are businesses and charities who have opted to relocate before the City Centre South development starts, which will help to create new homes, retail spaces, leisure facilities and more to make the city centre an attractive place to work, live and invest in. People have various opinions about the city centre and the empty shops within the area. Leslie Burton thinks the city is a ghost town. 
Who can afford to set up and survive in this economic climate with rates so high? And she wasn't alone. Many expressed similar concerns about the rental prices in the city. Steve Arnold said increases in rent were unsustainable for many small businesses. The council are doing all they can to drive out business both in the city centre and all other properties they manage and let out. Increases in rent and rates are all passed on to the customers, so it's the public who end up paying for a business to try and stay alive. Chris Anthony said that other factors like car parking charges should be taken into consideration to encourage shoppers. A lot of people choose out-of-town shopping as parking is free compared with stupidly priced city car parks. Police are performing forensic analysis on a stolen car dumped off-road by serial burglars after a pursuit through Coventry. Officers from Warwickshire's Police Operational Patrol Unit intercepted a cloned Ford Focus after its occupants were disturbed by the homeowner when they attempted a burglary in Western Underweatherly. The car, linked with several recent burglaries across Coventry, Nuneaton and Bedworth, was followed as it travelled back into Coventry. We pursued the vehicle along Humber Road, towards Sky Blue Way and then towards Binley Road, a spokesperson said. The vehicle went off-road and we were unable to follow. We located the vehicle abandoned on Sidley Avenue. Checks confirmed that the vehicle was stolen on the 2nd of July from Sainsbury's on the Fletchamstead Highway. The vehicle was recovered for a full forensic examination. The spokesperson added, We have also recovered balaclavas used by the offenders, so hopefully it won't be long before we start knocking doors and apprehending the criminals. Coventry's newest flagship building could be opening a new bar, cafe or restaurant. Property agents Creative Retail are now offering out out the 4,500 square foot of retail space on the ground floor of 2 Friargate within the city centre's premier new office building. The iconic office tower block is in a prime location in the city and is expected to become Coventry's go-to destination for socialising, business meetings and commuting. The building is on schedule for final completion and ready for occupation later this year. Ed Purcell of Creative Retail Property Consultants said the location of 2 Fragrate with Coventry train station on its doorstep and on the main thoroughfare to the city centre is perfect. Retailers will not only benefit from having a constant flow of passengers visiting and working in the city, but will also have access to around 1,500 people working in the offices above. With so many customers on your doorstep, we are looking at some exciting commercial opportunities in this location. We hope to add real value to the overall retail offer in Coventry City Centre to continue to cement the city as a destination for business and pleasure. Two Coventry schools are celebrating after being recognised in a prestigious national awards scheme. Elston Primary School was presented with a bronze award in the Making a Difference Primary School of the Year category at the Pearson National Teaching Awards 2023. It's the second successive year Elston Primary has been recognised in the national contests, which also saw Jane Frankish, head teacher of Broadheath Primary School in Foleshill, received silver in the Lifetime Achievements section. 
Rebecca Bolands, deputy head at Earlston Primary, said the school was delighted and honoured with its latest accolade. It is a testament to the dedication of our staff and also to the commitment of our pupils, not only to their learning but also to their active role in our community, said Rebecca. Earlston was recognised after teachers and students showed judges the ways in which they have improved both the school and the wider community. Judges complimented their dedication to serving as a school of sanctuary and its participation in worldwide priest projects. Managed by the Teaching Awards Trust with support from Pearson and the BBC, the Pearson Awards celebrate the impact of educational and transformational teaching within the UK. Outlook News Ah, well, that's it. That's uh, this week's local news from uh, Elaine and myself. Now, we have a couple of announcements, as, as ever, the usual one. Sunrise is 4.59 and sunset is 9.25. Uh, also, as a reminder, we told you last week of some of the what's on things. Uh, we haven't got an update on, on the bands in the park, but I will endeavour to get that for next week. But just to remind you of some of the things coming up very shortly on uh, uh, what's on guide around Coventry. 12th July, Cunatic Musical Experience, the Tin Music and Arts. 12th to 15th July, The Cost of You, a family drama at the Criterion Theatre. The 15th of July, Midsummer Night's Dream, which, which has a unique interpretation because it's being done outdoors at the Coventry Cathedral. And on the 21st of July, The Devout, Depeche Mode Tribute at the HMV Empire Coventry. And also on the 21st of July, Paul McCaffrey, Scott, Jeff Innocent and Barry Dodds at the Rialto Coventry. That's one or two for the next week or so for you to think about if you'd like to go to any of them. Now, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, we mentioned to you about British Blind Sports Have a Go Day at Henry VIII, and it didn't fall on deaf ears because Tony Irish went along there, uh, together with his friend Robert Franklin, who attends the Warwickshire Vision. Uh, they had a great day there. They went to the Hen- Henry VIII school where it was being held. They had a go at a number of events, including goalball and noughts and crosses. They had a wonderful time and were awarded a medal and a certificate. And the next major event, Tony says, uh, is at uh, the um, International British Blind Sports World Games in Birmingham, the world's largest sporting event for blind and partially sighted people. And the tickets are on sale now if you're interested in going along there. Two ways of getting hold of it. Uh, you can either phone them on 01926 227 or you can go to the website, which is www.ibsagames2023.co.uk slash tickets. So that's uh, the British Prime Sports big event coming up. Now, uh, a little... Uh, a while ago, a day or so ago, I came across an article about postage stamp changes at the end of this month, and I recorded it, and here's what I had to, had to say. As a part of its modernisation drive... Royal Mail has been selling stamps with barcodes that can be scanned since February 2022. Non-barcoded stamps are now being phased out and will no longer be usable after the 31st of July. After that date, an item with a non-barcoded stamp will be treated as if it was insufficient postage and will be subject to a surcharge. 
If you have old style stamps tucked away in your drawer and you don't think you'll get around to using them before the deadline, you can swap them for the new ones using Royal Mail's swap out scheme. Visit the Royal Mail site which is royalmail.com slash sending slash barcoded hyphen stamps to download the stamp swap out order form. This is valid up to £200 worth of stamps. Alternatively, uh, you can go to your local post office and uh, pick up a, a form there, but you won't be able to swap your stamps at the post office. The only exceptions are non-barcoded Christmas-themed and commemorative stamps, which will still be valid for postage past the deadline, cannot be swapped. Instead of swapping stamps, you could donate them. Many charities accept stamps, used and unused, as they can sell them and use the funds to continue their work. All you have to do is pop them in an envelope and send them to your chosen charity. Amnesty International, Oxfam, RNIB, Parkinson's UK and the British Hedgehog Preservation Society are just a few that accept stamps as donations. So that's uh, about stamps, just to make you aware that uh, some of them won't be valid, valid. Now, who's next? Well, who, who but Hugh, of course. Who but Hugh? Welcome, Hugh. Hello, thank you. Well, I got the, I got the call to come into this office, <laughs> into the recording studio, uh, but moments ago, having completely failed to write anything down, ah, well, so I have scribbled we, notes. We have to waffle, do we? we <laughs> when do I never waffle? <laughs> when do I never waffle? Right. Just a note about the, uh, the um, uh, International Blind Sports... Uh, uh, association games um, the gold ball because uh, I mentioned it I think um, uh, in my section about I don't know about a month ago I think yeah. the gold ball is taking place actually in Coventry uh, at the CBS arena and now if anybody uh, would like to go to that uh, I offered last time but nobody 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 replied I was very sad uh, <laughs> but if you want some help getting tickets to go to that uh, then uh, we can certainly help with that uh, and we will uh, I'm not sure that we'll arrange a, an outing from the resource centre but it depends on how many see people want to go really, yeah. see how it goes yeah. Yeah. Okay. When, when is it? Yes, That's a very is. good question. It, it very much is. I don't think I, I don't know exactly <laughs> when it is. Tell, tell me that. No, no. unfortunately, not. another thing to do for next week. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I think it might be at the end of this month. I might just have a, a little look on my computer right now. Um, uh, well, the instant, the instant, the instant, instant source of information. Can we, we just hope. pause for a moment? So, I, very quickly there, uh, I have uh, had a look at my computer. It was so quick that you didn't even notice, did you? You didn't, no. Um, uh, and the gold ball uh, starts on the 20th of August and goes on until the 27th of August. Right. Uh, so there's actually still a little bit of time there. I have no idea whether there are any tickets available, uh, but if you're interested, I say we will very much uh, look to help you um, access that if that's what you would like. Um, Talking of things coming up very soon, uh, we have the Summer Garden Party, of course, which takes place a week on Saturday. That's the 22nd of July. Um, any cakes that anybody could bake for us that we could sell on the day, I would be very grateful to hear about as well, because at the moment... So you know you've got the promise of them. Basically. Exactly. The yes. message is out there, but um, no messages have come back to say that cakes are definitely happening, and we'd really, really love to be able to offer those. Uh, we're also looking for some vo uh, more volunteers for the day. Uh, if you can... Uh, call the centre or if you've got people whose arms you can twist uh, to help with things like serving tea and uh, cake and uh, or sandwiches
temperatures and suns. Probably and washing up as well. And, and, <laughs> and probably washing up as well. Then we would be very grateful for the support. Um, call the centre 024-7671-7522 and speak to Heather or Carol if it's one of Carol's days. Um, there will be a... There will be bus arranged for the day. Uh, I think quite a lot of people have signed up for that already. Um, there'll be a number of trips, so it won't be everybody arriving all in one go. And you certainly won't be arriving at 12 o'clock uh, because <laughs> when the event starts, because you might be arriving at about half past 12, because if I get a whole bunch of people arriving at 12, you I, can't, won't be, I won't be ready. Can't cope. Can't cope. <laughs> so half past 12, we'll, we'll have got our feet under the table then. Uh, so we'll look forward to seeing the, those bus first bus arrivals at half past 12. If you want the bus and you're not booked on it, do please uh, give Claire a call and she will uh, see if she can fit you in um, now oh, I sold talking minibuses I sold the Ford at oh, the weekend the old one yes. the, well yeah, yeah, old, the old, 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 oldish one the one yeah. that we got a couple of years ago yeah. uh, that wasn't quite right for us so finally managed to get rid of that that means I have a little bit of money in the pot uh, to try and uh, buy another one but it's uh, I was looking at how big a pot I need are for a minibus. Are you looking for a third one to have three, are you? Uh, yeah. No, I'm looking to replace the smaller Renault ah, because right. that's, uh, in, in minibus years, it's about 80. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> so, so you still end up with two. Basically. So we'll still end up with two for the yeah. time being. Yeah. We will get to three at one point. Um, second-hand, even second-hand minibuses are eye-wateringly expensive uh, these days, and new ones are eye-wateringly uh, more yes. expensive. Yeah. So uh, we... But uh, stay tuned. Eventually, I'll find one, uh, I hope, anyway. Uh, the walking group has got going. Uh, we now had it's just had its second week. I think I talked to you about its first week last week. Uh, and its second week seems to be going strong. Um, if you're interested in that, uh, I know I've got a few more people signed up for it for, uh, from next week. Uh, we still need more volunteers in that, but also in many other areas of the charity. Uh, we are going to be launching soon a volunteering a volunteer recruitment campaign. Uh, we would like you good people to persuade all those lovely people that you know just to see if they can give us two hours a week that's all we need two hours a week um uh, and uh, to come and help us out here at the center anything from minibus driving to uh, supporting the monday club to supporting craft uh, um, the devices workshop all in, our activities even to help us as well. oh, indeed <laughs> absolutely and 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 the talking newspaper yeah. Yeah. not least and they will be definitely we will definitely be included just remind us uh, a uh, walking group when what day is it so that's on Wednesday mornings time uh, from 10.30 no 10 o'clock to 11.30 yep. um, it does cost like all our activities five pounds um, <laughs> but included in that you get a cup of coffee at the cafe if it's there. No need to book for that do they? Uh, well you certainly need to sign up for the group so, yes, um, okay. uh, so you'll need to need to check because uh, they're guided with volunteers we need to make sure that we have enough volunteers you know, we do an awful lot of um, stuff here at the uh, Resource Centre. Uh, you know that we won some funding uh, recently that's enabled us to employ Kudi and Chris um, in their new roles. Um, part of what they do, and actually developing uh, my job and the job of Joe and, and Heather and Carol and everyone, um, uh, is that we're developing a case load, a case workload. So that means that we can now help out uh, with supporting you to deal with issues to do with your benefits, your pay, housing, um, product support, really most things. 
um, and we will try and help you and if we can't help you then we will signpost you on to someone who can so if you've got any issues like that that you're just slightly struggling with that you're just thinking oh gosh how am I going to how am I going to get over get over that little hurdle there come and talk to us uh, and uh, we will we will get you sorted um, and help if we can so it's getting to be quite a good part of our our, our, our workload at the moment and it's um, it's really interesting way of helping people it could be just reading you letters you know reading you your letters and everything final uh, piece of information I have for you um, there is now hurrah a new ECLO up at the hospital um, what? ECLO the Eye Clinic Liaison Officer oh, thank you uh, and uh, uh, her name is Nula, Nula Callan, uh, and she's based up at uh, uh, University Hospital um, uh, three days a week and at Rugby St Cross on two days a week. I don't know actually which those days they are, but anyway, she's there. Um, she doesn't have a, a telephone just yet because she's only just started, <laughs> and um, so they haven't found anywhere for her to have a telephone, uh, but or indeed a mobile number yet. So as soon as that comes, I will let you know. Um, the ECLO is there to support you in your um, connections with the eye clinic, and 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 will sort of add a bit of uh, help help with any paperwork that the eye clinic has for you, um, as well as refer people on to places like hospitals so Warwickshire Vision and, um, and other local charities. So, um, Nula Callan, uh, if you happen to be up at the eye clinic, uh, give her a big warm welcome and say hi and that everybody is here to help her uh, do the gr- great job that we know she will. And that is it. Excellent. Thank you, Hugh. Thank you. We'll see you again next week, I guess. Uh, yes. 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 I'm not going yes. on holiday yet. Not, yeah, not I yet. will be yes. soon, but not, not yet. Yes. Uh, yes. Beginning yes. of next. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good. Thank you. And now, as usual, here's Sarah selecting some sporting highlights from the last seven days. Outlook Sport. Well, hello there, people, and welcome to sport. And my gosh, what an absolute jamboree we had this weekend of sport. I have to say, I actually feel sorry for those of you who don't like sport. But never mind. Right, I'm going to start rather unusually with the F1 Grand Prix, which was the British Grand Prix. I decided in advance that there was so much sport on the radio, the telly, the iPad, etc. that I wasn't going to watch or listen to the Grand Prix, but I'd just catch up on the highlights programme. Well, I was so glad that I just heard the last half hour of it, because as predicted and as traditional this season, it was a procession behind Max Verstappen. However, second and leading the procession was a Brit, no less than Lando Norris, the youngster. And then behind him, there was another Brit, Lewis Hamilton, the not-so-youngster, shall we say. So we had Lando in second place and Lewis in third on the podium. And my gosh, didn't a, didn't a crowd go mad? It was wonderful to see and hear. 
Now, the reason I was able to catch the end of the Grand Prix was that prior to that, I'd been listening to The Ashes. Now, the day before, you know, The Ashes, the cricket tournament between Australia and England, and I keep reminding myself of what I taught you last week, reasons why we should like cricket. Hmm. Well, actually, I have to confess, when it's Australia and England and it's quite exciting, I do like it, but I'm afraid I don't know or care about what my silly mid-off is or my deep square leg. Anyway, I'll leave the aficionados to worry about that. So, on the Saturday, the women had taken on Australia, England-Australia, in their third match of the Ashes season, which for them this time was a T20 match. And they obviously hadn't read the script because they won by five wickets and now trail Australia 2-1 in the series. And I believe we have three one-dayers coming up. So just watch that 2-1 Go to 2-2 and then 2-3, 2-4, or is that wishful thinking? Now, the men, meanwhile, their series of the Ashes is is all the traditional five days. Or rather, it would have been five days, but this one finished halfway through day four, hence why I could listen to the Grand Prix. Now, I'm assuming that those of you who are cricket aficionados have already heard the score, so I'm just going to give the highlights. Australia batted first, and, well, to be honest, they didn't do very well. They did okay, but not brilliantly. Then came England, who did even less well than Australia, and trailed by a small number of runs. So, Australia went in for their second innings and, to be honest, they did even less well. Cue England. Surely England couldn't lose this match. Australia haven't played well in either innings, could they? Well, let's rely on our talisman and captain, Ben Stokes. Hmm, he was out for 13. However, a young man called Harry Brooks clearly also hadn't read the script and hit to the boundary and bashed and ran and scored 75. However, this led to a very nervy last few balls. We still needed just under 30 runs when Brooks was out and we'd only got what's known as the tail enders in other words the bowlers primarily who have to bat to make up the numbers oh at this point I confess listeners I went up the garden and did some pruning and I was well pleased when I heard an interview with Ben Stokes our captain who said At that point, he walked round and round the changing room. Anyway, we did it with Chris Wokes hitting the winning shot 
and we won by three runs officially, but we've still got three wickets left. So we also, sorry, the men also now trail in the series 2-1. But just watch that switch. Please. The cricket now take the men's cricket now takes a break and resumes a week on Wednesday. So Wimbledon. Let's start off by looking at my two red hot outsiders for the title. Hmm. Well, my first one, Sebastian Corder. He went out in the first round. My second one, however, fourth seed, fourth in the world, Casper Rood. He went out in the second round, beaten by the British number five. Oh, what do I know about tennis? Anyway, going into that third round, we had three Brits playing. And at one stage, they were all on court at the same time on the show courts. In other words, two of them that have roofs. So, we had Andy Murray on centre court. He lost. We had Cameron Norrie on court one. He lost. And we had Leon Brody on court two. He lost. Never mind, we've still got one last hope playing on the Saturday, Katie Bolter. Well, to be honest, she was absolutely taken apart by the reigning champion, Ribikina. So we now have no Brits at all left in the singles at Wimbledon. But never mind, it's the doubles that really count. So who am I tipping now? Well, I don't want to say this too loud because I seem to be the kiss of death. But I would so much like Anjabur to win the women's. And I have to say I would like Novak Djokovic to win the men's. I know there are issues about him and during the vaccination issue, I absolutely detested the man. But I would like him to really, to get some of these records. I mean, he already holds the one record for the most number of Grand Slams at 23. But it would be quite nice for him to get 24 and actually get 25 if he wins the US Open. But I have to say, what a lovely man Carlos Alcaraz is. He's the young Spaniard I told you about last week. He's just lovely. After his match, he gives his rackets away. But in the interviews, he's so gracious and not all bombastic. So, yes, I think if Carlos won, he'd be also a worthy winner. And congratulations to the England under-21 football team, the men's, this is, who won the European Championship. So, come on, men, in 2024. The youngsters have done it. The women have done it. 
make it three, please. And a specific mention, I have to say, to our goalie, who made a wonderful penalty save in injury time. Right, on this Super Sporting Sunday, I also found out and totally missed that it had been the UK Athletics Championships. Now, although they're not competing for Olympic places this year, those who haven't been pre-selected were also competing for places in the World Championships. A huge congratulations but also commiserations to Darnell Hughes. He ran the 200 metres in 19.77 seconds, which normally would have been a new British record. It's blooming fast anyway. But it was ruled wind-assisted, by three one-hundredths of a second. Oh, don't you just sometimes think technology's gone a bit too far? Now, one sport I haven't covered over the past few weeks has... Well, I don't really cover it at all, and that's cycling and Le Tour de France. Well, it's a bit late to give it in detail now, though I'll mention it a bit more next week. But it is currently on, and it's on Eurosport. But I want to give a huge commiserations to Mark Cavendish. Now, Mark has, has announced that he is retiring at the end of this season, and he currently holds jointly the title for holding the most number of stage wins in the tour at 34 and he so wanted that 35th but unfortunately all he got was a broken collarbone in a huge pile-up never mind though mark your team has announced there's a place for you in 2024 if you want it that must be so tempting because we have the Olympics as well next year. And now, and finally, well, this made me laugh anyway. I, shall we say, listened to a women's tennis match last night on the television and I was able to follow it with my eyes closed because of, first of all, the grunts from the players... And secondly, the adoration and otherwise of the crowd. One of the players had this really annoying shriek, which makes my voice sound loud. A sort of eek, eek, eek. Whilst the other player had the occasional grunt. <gasps> so we had eek, eek, why bother to watch it? And then the crowd. Well, all I probably have to tell you is that one of the women was Russian and the other was Ukrainian. And the Ukrainian last one.
So that has been your sport. See you next week. Bye. Thanks, uh, Sarah, with the sports report. And now, as ever, over to Dave with your postbag. This is Postbag. Join in the discussion. Hello there and welcome to your postbag. And it's going to be a little bit romantic to start with. First of all, I'm speaking to you not from my uh, front room. I'm speaking to you from Sutton Coalfield, from Renato's Lounge, which is a bar and restaurant. And the reason I've come here is because he once sang a duet with Rennie called Save Your Love. Save your love, my darling, save your love For summer nights and moon and stars above And that got to number one And I once interviewed for Outlook Interviewed Rennie And she told me about this Renato's Lounge And I felt I'd like to come one day well, I came on the train to Birmingham and then the electricity packed up, so I had to come on the bus here, and it's taken me a very long time. <laughs> so, anyway, but uh, on the, carrying on with the romantic theme, here's an article from Julia about the wedding she went to in Cyprus. Well, Renato sadly died some years ago, but... Um, a restaurant in his name is there in Sutton Coalfield and his music lives on. And here is the latest report from Julia. My great big Cypriot wedding. Well, not mine really. It was my nephew, Louis, and his girl, Stacy. They didn't fancy getting hitched in the back room of the Plasterer's Arms in Nuneaton, so they hopped on to a lead jet and swanned off to Cyprus. Me and my sisters grabbed a bus and followed. You wouldn't believe our hotel. It's called the Constantino Athena Beach Hotel, and it was massive. It had six floors, three swimming pools, restaurants, shop, gym, hairdressers, massage room, and an entertainment room too. You could see everything, grass, sand, and sea. The rest of the family were even in a bigger hotel, up on the top of the cliff. That's where the wedding took place. We all threw confetti at Stacy and Lewis. Then there was cake and speeches and all the usual wedding stuff. Everybody got a bit drunk and did a knees up Mother Brown and formed two gangs and started fighting. Probably. The next day we went to a castle and had a long walk to sober up. It was a very good wedding and it was great to have a week off from visiting my friend John. I wish Lewis and Stacy a long and happy life together and may they be blessed with many happy children. Love from Julia. Thanks, Julia. If Lewis and Stacy are going to be blessed with many happy children, they are going to need a baby bath. Edwina has got one, but she uses it for gardening. 
Hi everybody, here's another tip of gardening. This is something that I did years and years ago. When I was first uh, diagnosed uh, with my sight defect, I found that it was quite hard working with the compost without making too much of a mess. So I came up with a brilliant idea. I went into a charity shop and I asked for a white baby bath. You know the baby bath that you bath your new baby in? Well if you buy one of those you can put your compost in and you can put your pot in and you can put your compost into your pot and make as much mess as you like. It's all in your bath. And it's helping you to um, put your plants in quicker too. I also use that same bath stood under my magnolia tree in the shade with water in and stood some of my pots in the water because the water goes to the root from the bottom and that way they had a good drink and then were placed back wherever they were to be placed. When I bought new ones that had been potted up I also stood some of those in the water. It was a quick way of doing things without having to fill a water in town. So there are lots of little things that you can do to help yourself as you say to the game. Take care everybody. Bye. Edwina hasn't been able to listen to our book recently. She tells me her Alexa has packed up. Doreen Hilton has bought a new boombox, which is very small, about one and a half inches square, but with superb sound quality. Here's Doreen. Just going on Play by USB drive. Now, 15 years ago, Dave's son Graham was born, and quite likely they have celebrated that big birthday. Thank you, Doreen. It was lovely t to come and see you and have a cup of tea and declare with you and meet your lovely little poodle. The boombox can be bought from the resource centre for £22. You plug the memory stick in it and it has an on-off switch at the bottom right-hand corner which you will need a fingernail to operate. It has four buttons along the front. The three on the right is the volume and for fast forward and reverse and, and tuning. And the one on the left is for the radio. If you don't need a radio but would like something a bit bigger and a bit more tactile, there is another square boombox, about three inches square, with a big yellow button on top. That costs about £35 and that's also got superb sound quality and they're both available from the resource centre. And from my own experience as a sighted person, it's much better quality and easier to listen to Outlook than on a mobile phone. The uh, memory sticks also more personal. Listeners have told me that... Uh, 
having their plastic wallet coming through the letterbox is being like being visited by a group of friends every week. And talking of mobile phones, Bob Syme asked you last week to recommend a mobile phone that's visually impaired friendly, so please let Bob know. And talking of friends, here's Monday Club member Janet to say hello to you, Doreen. Hello, Janet Lucas here. It's nice to hear you, Doreen Hilton, with your message. Hope to see you soon. And it's nice to know that your messages in Postbag are listened to and appreciated, Doreen. And thank you, Janet, for the nice things you say to me about my pieces on Outlook when we're in the Monday Club. Janet told me she liked Graham's 50th party and all the music. Well, Graham was going on his own to the party and his holiday, and uh, so he was going to do Sheila and myself a live video on WhatsApp from his party at the Wirral. But after Sheila sadly died, he took me away and we walked 54 miles during his birthday week, which I hope you're enjoying, along with the other outings and breaks that we've reported on. Graham also took me to an album launch concert in Liverpool, starring my favourite pop star Ellie Goulding. This is a message that she sent to me during the lockdown. Hi David Monk's MBE, it's Ellie Goulding. I just want to say a very quick hello to you and sending you lots of love and best wishes for the future. Maybe I'll see you next year on the Brightest Free Tour and I hope you're enjoying the new album. Bye! Thanks to Graham, Julia and also Sheila for encouraging me to sing. I have joined a singing group called the Nostalgics who were once on The X Factor. One of the group who sang in front of Simon Cowell, Louis Walsh and Gary Barlow was Sylvia, whom I once interviewed about her horse riding. Sylvia was a member of the Braille class and she wants to know how Eric says this. So here she is to speak to you, Eric, followed by a little example of Sylvia's lovely voice at the Nostalgics. Hello, Eric. It's Sylvia. Yeah, I hope you're all right. Okay. And see everybody else. Okay. Eric Stace has done a fantastic amount to help his fellow blind and visually impaired people like audio description and pantomime touch doors to the Belgrade Theatre and Vista, the visually impaired and sighted tandem association based at the Resource Centre. Graham Whale encourages you to help campaign to make life better through his work for the Coventry branch of the National Federation of the Blind, his chairperson. Last week he talked about the danger of electric bikes in the precinct. Since then I met Coventry Council Disability Officer, Councillor Christine Thomas at the Godiva Festival and she wants you to tell her of your experiences. Here she is to talk to you. 
Uh, I'd like to say that at the moment I'm gathering information and working in conjunction with parking enforcement officers at Coventry City Council and the police regarding electric bikes and what we're particularly concerned about are the delivery drivers that are speeding around town. I've had several near misses. If you could contact me and I will give you my email address, it is Christine dot thomas at coventry dot gov dot uk that is christine dot thomas at coventry dot gov dot uk if you could please let me know of any uh, incidences you have of near misses with bikes I will pass the information on to the police thank you yes please let councillor Christine Thomas know directly to her via email or via postbag and I'll pass them on to her and she'll pass them on to the police so thank you for your messages this week you must have lots to talk about tell us what you've been doing recently do you belong to a group and uh, and also have you been on holiday is there a holiday organisation you recommend or or anything any, any sort of uh, any sort of thoughts arising from anything you've heard on Outlook. I mean, you, you can phone us up, of course, and our studio answer phone is 02476 717 522 and press 5 for Coventry Talking Newspaper. Or uh, any other way you, you want to communicate with us and therefore your fellow listeners who would love to hear from you. Well, thank you for your messages this week. And bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. So that was Dave there with your Postbag for this week. And this week's notable building takes Margaret out of the city centre and into Cowndon to look at Cowndon Hall. Said to have been built on the site of a medieval farmhouse, Cowndon Hall is the last surviving large Georgian hall outside the city centre. It was built around 1800 and its owner in 1821 was John Hopkin. He died without issue. Thomas Isherwood was the owner into the 1860s. The building was for sale in 1883 and described as standing in well laid out lawns, pleasant grounds and shrubberies planted with trees and shrubs of mature growth and about 52 acres of superior park-like lands studded with fine elm, oak and other trees and divided into convenient enclosures of permanent iron fencing and bounded by belts of plantation. The stabling and offices are ample and include stalls for five horses, four loose boxes, carriage house and other suitable offices and cottage for a coachman groom. 
There is also another prettily situated cottage residence with garden and spinney, let to Mr F. W. King Hall, and nearly all the lands were late in the occupation of Mr J. R. Wynne. The cottage was Camden Hall Farm. Wynne, a stud breeder of shire horses and rare breed cattle. In 1891, Richard Alexander Rotherham of the watchmaking family is given as the owner and in 1896, Colonel Richard Caldicott was occupying the hall. A childless widower, he died the same year. Rotherham himself was in residence after the Colonel's death. From 1898 to 1945, it was the home of Edgar Turrell, a magistrate with connections to the cycle and textile industry. All the owners of the hall continued its tradition of keeping cattle, Herefords, White Parks and Longhorns. After Turrell's death, the hall passed through many hands, becoming the Old Hall Hotel in 1947. And then in the late 1960s, it was a beefeater house before in its many reincarnations as a pub and an eating house. Susie Fletcher was one of the UK's first female saddle masters, or maybe that should be saddle mistresses, uh, before she landed a role at the BBC's popular programme, The Repair Shop, where you may have come across her doing wondrous things to some very sorry-looking leather goods. Sue tells the story. When the repair shop's Susie Fletcher was a little girl, she made a leather saddle for her Cindy doll from Offcuts. It was Susie's first attempt at leather work and ignited a passion that led her to becoming one of the UK's first female master saddlers, eventually ending up on the hit BBC television show. More than 50 years on, Susie, 62, still has the little leather saddle and Cindy doll and proudly holds it aloft when we meet. It's one of the many stories in her new book, The Sun Over the Mountains, where Susie lays bare her life, adventures and challenges. It was my love of horses that led me to making saddles, says Susie, who spent her childhood very much outdoors in rural Oxfordshire. My childhood was full of incredible life lessons from my parents. They were very much make-do and mend, she says. The youngest of four, her brother Steve is the clock specialist on the repair shop, Susie was shy as a child, but her love of saddlery brought her out of her shell. And it was through meeting local master saddler Ken Langford, whom she dedicates the book to, that she found her true calling. I had a pony called Jess and had an inferior saddle that broke, says Susie. I was devastated it was not worth repairing, but Ken said, go home and take it apart, see what it's made of. When I went back and showed Ken what I'd done, I knew I had found my passion. Ken gave me a job during school holidays and at weekends. He would let me handle a knife and cut and unpick the stitching so I could study how things were put together. Susie, who is dyslexic, is passionate that more practical skills are taught in school and values the importance of mentoring. 
I did metalwork, woodwork and needlework as a child and because of Ken's support I was able to secure a position at Cordwainers, now part of the London College of Fashion, leaving school at 16. I made belts and handbags and it fed this design side of my brain, a dyslexic brain that didn't fit the norm when it came to maths and physics. Yet here I was using maths and physics in my work. She then moved on to bridles and eventually the holy grail of the saddle. After leaving Cordwainers, where famous shoe designer Jimmy Choo also trained, Susie continued her apprenticeship with Ken before eventually becoming a master. I was one of the first female saddle makers. In the 1970s it was still very male dominated. When you go into an environment where you meet with lots of brick walls you keep knocking them down. That builds inner strength, tenacity and determination. Susie quickly established herself in the industry and worked around the country, including for William Turner, harness maker to the Queen. But she was keen to explore, and at 33 she moved to Colorado to work as a master saddler, taking just two suitcases and her toolbox. While she only intended to go for a couple of years, she ended up staying for 22, as just three weeks after she arrived, she met Rob, a heavy equipment machine operator. They married within three months. In the books, she talks candidly about the ups and downs of their relationship until he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2013. It was Thunderbolt City when we met, she says. It was a very honest marriage. I chose to look at it as beyond passionate, beyond energetic. Everything was on steroids. The couple, who had no children, lived on a remote ranch in Colorado's eastern plains with a menagerie of horses, dogs and cats while Susie built up her business. Mankind owes the horse a debt of gratitude which I feel very deeply, says Susie, who still rides. You can look in a horse's eye and it'll make the day much better. When I was nursing my husband, my first horse Bob knew I was hurting inside and he came up and wrapped his neck around me. It was an incredible moment of him saying, don't worry, we've got you. Rob died a few months after his diagnosis and four years later, Susie made the heartbreaking decision to leave the ranch, making sure any remaining animals were rehomed. She returned to the UK with the same two suitcases and toolbox she'd left with. I came back with few material things, but a massive experience. I have immense gratitude for that. Within five weeks, she was filming the repair shop. Looking back, I can see how out of my brain I was, says Susie. I felt very vulnerable and exhausted. Instead of taking the easy route, I thought, just jump in. Here's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I have the safety net of Steve being there. As siblings, we get to work together, and the gratitude we feel being able to make people happy is priceless. 
On the show, Susie intricately restores much-loved saddles and other leather, leather goods back to their former glory, with truly emotional results for the owners to whom they hold great sentimental value. We all know how that feels when you do something for someone else, you get that rush of endorphins and it's very addictive. It's in all of us to do that and the more of us that can do that, the better the world becomes. Another person she cites in helping her is the show's Jay Blades. Like Susie, he too is dyslexic and encouraged her to write her story. When I was contemplating doing the book, I spoke to a handful of trusted people who I knew would tell it like it was. He didn't skip a beat when he came back with the answer as to why I should do it. He has this sixth sense and he reads people well. Susie now lives in Oxfordshire near her old family home. Still making the occasional bespoke saddle from her workshop, she wants to use this next chapter of her life to highlight the incredible crafts in this country and keep them alive. As you get older, you realise we're here for a temporary amount of time. I don't have any intention of stopping because there's so much I want to get done. I intend to work into three digits and stay with the repair shop as long as they want me. I'm constantly impressed by the enormous variety of things the repair shop tackles uh, and make a splendid job of bringing back to life and recapturing cherished family memories. From the old to the, re uh, uh, to the renewed in the repair shop to old words and phrases which have evolved into modern language as recorded by Susie Dent's Dictionary Corner in the Radio Times and here read by Margaret. Nickname Nicknames have been tossed about a lot in the political arena lately. Donald Trump has dismissed Ron DeSantis as Ron de Sanctimonious or Ron de Establishment, while he himself continues to be dubbed Tiny by Stormy Daniels on account of his shortcomings. But such name-calling is nothing new, as Alfred the Great and Ethelred the Unready would testify. The word nickname originally looked rather different. It was an eek name, in which eek meant additional. Via a process of what linguists call false division, the n moved from an to eek. This process also gave us umpire, which began as numpire or non-peer, a person on a different level of authority than the players, and an apron from the French naperon, little tablecloth. On the lamb. The term on the lamb, meaning on the run, joins a family of other words newspapers like to use in the context of a criminal caper or heist. Its story began in 19th century North America, when to lamb meant to escape or flee, particularly from the authorities. To be on the lamb, therefore, meant to be in flight from the police. But what exactly is a lamb? It all goes back to a very different sense of the word, meaning to hit hard or strike, 
a word with Scandinavian origins that is at the heart of lambaste, in which based also means thrash, producing a hefty double whammy. To lamb it, meanwhile, especially in schoolboy slang, meant to run off, continuing with the idea hitting or beating it. Take the biscuit. To take the biscuit when it first appeared in the late 19th century was to win or excel at something. Today it has become an exclamation used when somebody has acted in a way that is especially annoying or surprising and that tops everything else. While we might assume that any expression involving a biscuit would be British, the earliest examples of it are actually from the US, where it's a variation on an earlier phrase, to take the cake, meaning to carry off the honours. This may have begun with the giving of a cake as a prize in a cakewalk, a contest in graceful walking among enslaved black people in southern plantations. By the 1880s, a biscuit had supplanted the cake as the reward in question, and a distinct note of irony began to creep in. UK's Gilbert Richards Centre in Earlson uh, has been providing friendship and fun for older people for 40 years, uh, and Keith now reads an article from the Earlson Echo celebrating the event of Age UK. The Gilbert Richards Centre was a hive of activity as it marked its 40th anniversary with an open day. The GRC is jointly occupied by Coventry City Council Social Services and Age UK Coventry and Warwickshire. Council Social Services provides day centre opportunities for people over the age of 50. This service is only accessible if you had a social care assessment. Among the activities provided by Age UK are quilting, crafts, dressmaking, pottery, upholstery, woodwork and IT, and there were demonstrations of these at the open day. There was also an information board explaining who Gilbert Richards was and the history of the site as a secondary and then a junior school, catering for boys only from 1928 to 1978. The school had the distinction of being the last council-run all-boys junior school in the city, as Earlston was the last all-girls school. Some of the people there for the open day had been pupils many decades ago and could recognise the barely changed layout of the building, with the former classrooms, now activity rooms, leading off the veranda, split by the central admin block where head teachers like Messrs J.R. Davis and C.R. Schneider, once held sway. Lord Mayor Councillor Kevin Mayton gave an enthusiastic welcome to attendees of the Open Day, highlighting the role of volunteers in helping the paid staff to provide the services at the GRC and expanding on the theme of the role of volunteers across many public services. Sounds like a popular venue for older folks to get together, socialise and have some fun. Now, Ali is back again with one of Cynthia Townsend's short stories, and this one is called Broken Heart Pendant. Sally had been waiting at the hospital for several hours, waiting for news of her friend and neighbour Maggie. Early that day, 
Sally had noticed Maggie's cat, Perkins, sitting on the doorstep meowing and scratching at the front door, which wasn't like him. He was usually a very timid cat who didn't like to draw attention to himself, but he spotted Sally and started to meow even louder. "'What's wrong with you, Mr P?' asked Sally. "'Where's your mum?' Usually when Sally got home from work, she'd see Maggie through the window sitting at her desk working on a laptop, and Perkins would be sitting in the window watching the world go by. But there was no Maggie, and Perkins was outside. Sally thought it was odd, and once she got into her own house and put the bags down and take the coat off, she went into the kitchen to get the spare key for Maggie's house. Both of them had a key for each other's house, in case of emergencies, and also when Maggie went to her writer's conferences, Sally used to go in and feed Perkins. She got the key from the key pot in the kitchen and made her way round to Maggie's. She opened the front door. H- Hello, Maggie. Are you in? Perkins ran inside through the front door. He did have his own cat flap at the back, but felt he was too grand to use it and only liked coming in and out of the front door. That's odd, thought Sally. Maggie's laptop was on the table and switched on, but it was in sleep mode. There was a mug of half-drunk tea at the side and a half-eaten digestive biscuit on a plate, but no sign of Maggie. Perkins came to find Sally in the front room and started meowing loudly again, as if he was trying to attract her attention. OK, OK, said Sally. What is it you're trying to tell me? Perkins led Sally into the kitchen and there... She saw Maggie lying on the kitchen floor, a pool of blood by her head. Oh my God, Maggie, Maggie, shouted Sally in a state of distress. She got a mobile and rang for an ambulance. It looked like Maggie had been trying to get something out of a cupboard and had used a small stepladder to get to it. She must have lost the balance and fell backwards and somehow hit her head. Perkins sat next to Maggie, licking her, and in his own way trying to wake her up. You could tell he was upset as she lay there motionless on the kitchen floor. Within no time, Sally heard the sirens of the ambulance and went outside to meet the paramedics and tried to explain what she thought had happened. It didn't take long for them to go in, do their checks, and bring a still unconscious Maggie out into the street and put her in the ambulance. "'Are you going to come with us?' said the paramedic to Sally. Uh, "'No, I'll come along later. I need to make sure the house is locked and the cat's fed first. Sally was always a very practical person and could be relied on to stay calm in a crisis. Sally had lived next door to Maggie for a number of years. Maggie was in her late forties, but always acted a lot younger. Sally was twenty-nine. In fact, she was just a couple of weeks away from her thirtieth birthday. When she moved into her house, it was Maggie she first met. She came round the same day armed with a packet of chocolate bourbons and some tea bags. They hit it off straight away and became firm friends. Sally had been brought up by her grandparents. She didn't know her mother. She left home not long after Sally was born and wasn't really spoken about at home, so her grandparents were everything to her. Jim and Sandra Clark gave Sally the best childhood. She wasn't spoilt, but had a good life, and when the time came for her to leave home and go to university, they found it hard to say goodbye, but they wanted her to have a good education. It was that good education that got her the career in business and enabled her to buy her first house when she moved away to work for a large investment company. Jim and Sandra had not been to see the house as Jim's health hadn't been too good, but they were hoping to visit in the summer. 
Maggie was a children's author and worked mainly from home. Her office was the front room. You'd think having a desk near to a window would be a distraction, but Maggie liked to see the activity in the street and would get the inspiration from people she saw. Perkins always sat in the window, watching the world go by, and was happy just to sit there, keeping Maggie company. By the time Sally had got to the hospital, Maggie had already been assessed and was in intensive care. The blow to her head was severe, and they'd done a scan, and it looked like there was a major bleed which needed surgery. Maggie didn't have family. Well, if she did, she never mentioned it to Sally, so there was no one she could call to let them know. When they took Maggie down to theatre, the nurse explained to Sally that it would be a long wait and that she'd best go home and ring in the morning. Sally took the nurse's advice and went home. Her first port of call was to Maggie's house to see how Perkins was. He was sitting in the window. It's almost like he was hoping to see Maggie, but when he saw Sally, he bopped his head against the pane of glass to acknowledge her and was waiting inside the door when she opened it. Unusually for him, he rubbed up against her legs and he let her stroke him. I know, you're wondering where your mum is, said Sally. She's in good hands, don't worry. She went to get some food out of the cupboard and tidied up the kitchen. The blood was easy to get off the floor as it was marble, but it left pinkish stains in the cracks of the tiles. Sally decided she'd tackle that another time. The next morning, Sally rang the hospital to see how Maggie was. It wasn't good news. Although the operation had gone well, Maggie regained consciousness briefly, enough to talk to the nurse, but then fell into a coma and was still out when Sally called them later. Sally needed to speak to her grandparents to tell them what had happened. They knew she was a good friend to their granddaughter and was very concerned knowing that Maggie didn't have any family of her own. Do you want us to come and stay with you for a little while, said Sandra. Only if Gramps is up to it, said Sally. They arrived later that day and made themselves at home. It was so good to see them. Sally had truly missed them. Work was so full on at the moment and so all-consuming that she didn't see them as often as she'd like, but she knew that if she needed them, they would be there. After a night of catching up and introducing her grandparents to Perkins, who decided he was happy to plonk himself in Sally's front window, Sally ordered a takeaway, and the three of them reminisced about all the holidays they'd had and the people they'd met. Later that evening... Sally sat on the couch and said, Can I ask you both something? Have you heard at all from my mum? Sandra was curious. Why do you ask? You know we don't talk about her. Why now? Oh, it's all this business with Maggie. It's really upset me. She doesn't have family of her own. Well, if she did, she she wouldn't know anyone. And it got me thinking, if my mum was still out there somewhere and she was alone... Or did she have a family? I want to know. Sandra took a deep breath. We only heard from your mother once. It was on your 18th birthday. She sent a card and something in a box. Why didn't you give it to me, said Sally. Well, we didn't want to spoil your day. Sally was silent. She got used to not speaking about her mother and at times had totally forgotten that Jim and Sandra weren't her parents. Can I ask you something else, said Sally. What happened to the box? I carry it with me. Sandra went into a handbag and pulled out a small velvet box. Inside was a silver half of a pendant with a heart and the word together engraved on one side. Where's the other half, said Sally. 
There isn't one. That was all that was in the box. And the note said, one day, this will be whole. Sally looked closely at the pendant. She was convinced that this wasn't the first time she'd seen something like this, but she couldn't remember where. The next morning, Sally rang the hospital. It was not good news. Gram, Gramps, she shouted, I've got to go. The hospital called. I need to go. We'll come with you, said Sandra. She quickly fed the cat and all three of them went to the hospital. When they got there, the nurse was waiting by the door outside Maggie's room. I'm afraid she took a turn for the worse in the night and she's on life support. It's not looking very hopeful. Can I, can I see her? asked Sally. Yes, of course. It might be good if you could sit with her and talk to her. Hearing a friendly voice could be a trigger. Do you want us to come in too? asked Sandra. Yes, please, said Sally. The three of them walked into the room. Maggie was lying there motionless and wired up to various machines. Oh my God! exclaimed Sandra. Jim, it's Susan. Who? said Sally. Susan, said Sandra. Your mum. Just as the word mum had left Sandra's lips, the medical equipment started to bleep. The nurse rushed in, yelled crash team, and asked everyone to leave. Sally, Sandra and Jim were in a state of shock. The person that Sally had known as Maggie, her kindly neighbour, was in fact her real mum. She could not believe it. It couldn't be. Maybe Sandra was mistaken. How could she know after a split second that the woman lying in the hospital bed was the daughter she hadn't seen for nearly thirty years? There was a lot of frenzied activity in the room, and then it all went quiet. The nurse came out looking ashen-faced. I'm sorry, we did everything we could, but... In the end, she had a massive heart attack, and we just couldn't revive her. Sally slumped into her grand's arms. I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. She couldn't have been my mum. I would have known, wouldn't I? The nurse put her hand in the pocket of her uniform. She said, when Maggie briefly woke up after the operation, she gave me something and asked me to give it to you should anything happen to her. She pulled out a silver pendant with half a heart. Engraved on the back was the word, again. It was the other half of the pendant that Sandra had given to Sally only the night before. The broken heart pendant was whole. It was together again. But it was reunited too late. All this time, Sally had been living next door to her real mother and never knew it. Did Maggie know Sally was her real daughter? I guess we'll never know. Just ten days ago saw the Godiva Festival in the War Memorial Park, which, with the added bonus of beautiful weather, of course, was an enormously successful three-day event, which, of course, Dave went along to and brings us this report. Hello there! It's a welcome to the Godiva Festival! And overlooking the Godiva Festival is a giant movable puppet of Godiva herself. And she's got blonde hair, she's got um, a gold lame dress with 
patterns of the three spires in gold and silver on the bottom and gold roses and she moves ahead, waves at the crowd and she blinks and occasionally winks to someone. If you remember, I did a report on the spectacular Godiva Awake Ceremony where she's awakened from her thousand year sleep. She was then peddled down to Walthamstow Forest by a relay of about 72 cyclists on tricycles welded together, about 35 of them. And uh, some of Vista took part in that as well, including our own listener, Julia. First of all, I went in the Green Space Life and Times tent at the Godiva Festival. I'm speaking to Amy now. Can you tell me what's going on on, on your stall, please, in the green tent? Oh, it's like we're selling some we're selling some handmade goods, and they're all made by those ladies. And we're trying to make some donations for the for the community and all these activities. So. Christine Thomas. Now you've been to a meeting recently, and you you, you think Coventry is very helpful and inclusive to. Uh, people with all uh, disabilities, right? Yeah, um, I've been having the honour to chair the DEEP, which is the Disability Equality Action Partnership Advisory Panel at Coventry City Council for the last seven years. I'm now entering my eighth year as chair. I am a registered disabled person myself. I use a mobility scooter, so I don't just walk the walk, I talk the talk as well. And one of the things that we do at the council is we have a committee and this committee is made up of ordinary people from every walk of life, people from organisations like Patmore Queenwood with the Guide Dogs for the Blind, uh, Diane Hill who's the former magistrate and lots of other people from different organisations as well as individuals who are either carers or people who require enablement and what we do is we act as a voice at the highest level of local democracy for people with disabilities and we are actively levelling up in Coventry by producing charters we work with local organisations we work with the Business Improvement District and other partners as well as stakeholders which are the people listening to this, you people to make sure that as a council we encourage people to provide what you need to have as normal a life as you can within the confines of your uh, needs. Hello, I'm speaking to Kyle. So, what stand are you on? Um, I'm on the uh, Coventry and District Archaeological Society stand at Cadaver uh, Festival. Thank you. What, what kind of things uh, are on display? What kind of things can you find in uh, your own garden, for instance? Well, you can find many types of pottery. Um, examples that we have here on our store date from Victorian to Georgian. Um, you can also find bone, uh, we found lots of animal, animal bone uh, from sheep, pigs, cattle, things like that. Um, also of particular interest you get oyster shells. Uh, oy freshwater oysters used to be fished in large quantities and were a staple foodstuff for the poor during the medieval period. So we find lots of oyster shells around. 
to uh, David Barnard, and you're a master thatcher. I am, yes. Great, right? and you come from Welford on Avon. Yeah, I've been sort of thatching since I left school, That's so it. best part of 30 years. Wow. Um, very, very busy. It's yeah. not the dying trade that everybody's sort of led to believe. It's quite a healthy industry yeah. um, because it's eco-friendly, it's a sustainable product, yeah. good insulation. Um, so it's a very sought-after product again, which is nice for me and yeah. nice visually. You're holding a thatched duck. Yeah. Uh, now, is that your trademark and goes on top of a thatched roof? Because there often is a, a little trademark from the thatcher. Traditionally, yeah, you tell one thatcher's work from the next. So before business cards and the internet, you'd look at a roof and see an yeah. owl or a pheasant or so yeah. you know it's such and such work. It's a bit more commercial these days, so we tend to make what the customer asks for. Yes. Um, I've done all sorts of weird and wonderful things. I've got a racing car down there. I've done teddy bears, cows, <laughs> even piglets. Well, there's all sorts of things going on. We could have a festival at the moment. Uh, a girl is cycling on a bicycle along a tightrope. Of course, the uh, emphasis for the Comfrey Godiva Festival is music, and at one stage the Cossacks, the Cossacks are playing, and this is a British, Ukrainian, and folk fusion. At the moment, on one of the big stages, there is the dance group Diversity, and they uh, beat Susan Boyle to win Britain's Got Talent. Hello, I'm speaking to a couple here and they're wearing ga coloured garlands. Right, so uh, what do you think of the Godiva Festival, you two? Yeah, it's really good. There's a lot of activities and a lot of food. It's brilliant. Okay, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's a real improvement over the last years that I came, so it's really well organised. Yeah, it feels safe. Yeah, it's great. Having a really good time. Meeting some really nice people like yourself. <laughs> Thank you very much. So what's your name? It's Matthew. Charlotte. Well, it's been nice meeting you. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks. Thank you, and that's all from the Godiva Festival. Bye for now. And with music and sounds from that joyful festival, we come to the end of this week's Outlook. So from the team and from me, Nigel Hewan, it's goodbye till next week.